You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled Spiritualism, Madame Blavatsky and Theosophy. This is Lecture 7, entitled Christ and the Further Development of Conscience, given in Berlin on May 8, 1910. Today, May 8, the Theosophical Society celebrates the Day of the White Lotus, which is known to the outer world as the Day of Death of the One who activated the spiritual stream in which we stand. Footnote, from 1902 to 1912, Dr. Steiner was the General Secretary of the German section of the Theosophical Society. His separation from it, along with a group of other members of the section, led to the founding of the Anthroposophical Society. A full exposition of these events can be found in Boxmuth's title Life and Work of Rudolf Steiner. End of footnote. <clears throat> to us it would seem more appropriate to select a different designation for today's festival, one taken from our knowledge of the spiritual world. Thus, we might speak of the day of transition from an activity on the physical plane to one in the spiritual worlds. To us it is not only an inner conviction in the ordinary sense of the word, but an ever-increasing knowledge that what the outer world calls death is but the passing from one form of work, from activities stimulated by the impressions of the outer physical world to those entirely stimulated by the spiritual world. Today, when we remember H. P. Blavatsky and the leaders of her movement, who have also now passed over into the spiritual realm, let us try to form a clear idea of what we ourselves must make of our spiritual movement, so that it may represent a continuation of the activity she exercised on the physical plane. Let it become a continuation of that activity, and also make it possible for her to continue her work from the spiritual world now and in the future. On such a day as this, it is only fitting that we should break away from our usual study of theosophical life and problems. Instead, we should look in retrospect at the tasks and duties the theosophical movement sets before us. This may lead us to a prevision of what this movement should become in the future, what we should and should not do. The theosophical movement, as we are carrying it on, came into the world as the result of certain quite special circumstances and historical necessities. You know there was no question, as in other spiritual movements or unions, of one or more individuals determining to follow certain ideals out of enthusiasm arising from the quality of their hearts and minds, or of trying to enthuse and induce others to form societies or unions to carry these ideals into practice. We can only speak of it thus when we see it as an historical necessity of our present life, when we see it as something that was bound to come, regardless of what people felt about it, because it already lay in the womb of time, so to speak, and had to be brought to birth. <clears throat> How then may we regard the theosophical movement? It may be considered as a descent, a new descent of spiritual life, wisdom, and forces from the supersensible worlds into the sensory physical world. Such a descent had to take place for the further development of man, 
and such happenings must occur repeatedly in the future. Of course, it cannot be our task today to indicate all the different impulses through which spiritual life has flowed down from the supersensible worlds, so that when man's soul life had grown old, as it were, it should be renewed. Such impulses have frequently occurred in the course of time. One thing, however, must be borne in mind. In the primeval past, not long after the great Atlantean catastrophe, which various traditions record as the story of the flood, the impulse occurred that may be described as the inflow of spiritual life into the development of mankind through the holy rishis. Then came that stream of spiritual life that flowed into man's evolution through Zarathustra or Zoroaster, and we find still another in the one that came to the old Israelites through the revelations of Moses. Finally, we have the greatest impulse of all, in that mighty inflow of spiritual life that poured into the physical world through the earthly appearance of Christ Jesus. This is by far the mightiest impulse ever given in the past, and as we have repeatedly emphasized, it is greater than any that can come into earthly development in the future. We have also stated repeatedly that new impulses must continue to come. New spiritual life and a new understanding of the old must flow into the development of mankind. Were it not for this, the tree of human evolution, which will grow green when humanity has attained its goal, would wither and perish. The mighty wave of Christ that poured into human development must, through the new spiritual impulses flowing into earthly life, be ever better understood. As our own age, the nineteenth century, drew near, the time arrived when human development again required a new intervention, a new impulse. Again new stimuli, new revelations had to flow from the supersensible worlds into our physical world. This was a necessity and ought to have been felt as such on earth as it was in those spiritual regions from which the earth is guided. Only a short-sighted human observation could ask, what is the use of these constantly fresh streams of perfectly new truths? Why should there be constantly new knowledge and life impulses? We have what was given us in Christianity, and we can go on quite simply in the old way with that. <clears throat> From a higher standpoint, this is really extremely egotistical. The very fact that such egotistical remarks are so frequently made today by the very people who believe themselves to be good and religious offers even stronger proof that our spiritual life needs to be refreshed. How often do we hear it said today, What is the use of new spiritual movements? We have our old traditions that have been preserved from the beginning of recorded history. Let us not spoil these traditions by what these people say who always think they know better. That is an egotistical expression of the human soul. Those who speak thus are not aware of this, and they do not realize that they are only anxious about the demands of their own souls. They feel in themselves that they are quite satisfied with what they have, and they establish the dogma dreadful from the standpoint of conscience. Quote, if, they, if we are satisfied with our way, those who come after us and must learn from us must find satisfaction in the same way. All must continue as we feel it to be right and in accordance with our knowledge. Unquote. That way of talking is frequently heard in the outer world. It does not merely come from the limitations of a narrow soul, but it is connected with what we might call an egotistical bent of the soul. In religious life, souls may in reality be extremely egotistical while wearing a mask of piety. 
Anyone who takes the question of the spiritual development of mankind seriously must, if he studies the world around him with understanding, become aware of one thing. He must see that the human soul is gradually breaking away from the method by which men, for centuries, have contemplated the Christ impulse, that greatest impulse in the development of mankind. I do not, as a rule, care to refer to contemporary matters, because what goes on in the external spiritual life today is for the most part too insignificant to appeal to the deeper side of a serious observer. During the past few weeks, however, it was impossible to pass a bulletin board without seeing notices of a lecture entitled, Did Did Jesus Live? You probably all know that what led to this subject being discussed so widely, sometimes with radical weapons, were the views of a German philosophy professor, Sir Arthur Drews, a disciple of Edward Hartmann, author of titled The Philosophy of the Unknown. Professor Drews's book, titled The Christ Myth, had been made more widely known through the lecture Did Jesus Live, given by him here in Berlin. Of course, it is in no sense my task to enter into the particulars of that lecture. I will only put its principal thoughts before you. The author of title, The Christ Myth, a modern philosopher, who may be supposed to represent the science and thought of the day, searches through the several ancient records that are supposed to offer historical proof that a certain person named Jesus of Nazareth lived at the beginning of our era. Then, with the help of what science and the critics have proved, he tries to reduce the result of this to something like the following question. Do the separate Gospels, as historical records, prove that Jesus lived? He takes all that modern theology has to say and then tries to show that none of the Gospels, as historical records, proves Jesus ever lived. He also tries to prove that none of the other records of a purely historical nature is determinative and that nothing conclusive concerning an historical Jesus can be deduced from them. Now, everyone who has gone into this question knows that, considered purely from an external standpoint, the sort of observation practiced by Professor Drews has much in its favor and comes as a result of modern theological criticism. I will not go into details. What is of importance is that someone who has studied the philosophical side of science should assert that there is no historical document to prove that Jesus lived because the only documents that are supposed to offer such proof are not authoritative. Druze and all those of like mind depend upon what has come to us from the Apostle Paul. In recent times there there are even people who doubt the genuineness of the Pauline epistles, but since the author of the Christ myth does not go that far, we will not. Druze says that St. Paul does not base his assertions on a personal acquaintance with Jesus of Nazareth, but on the revelation he received in the event at Damascus. We know that this is absolutely true, but Drews concludes, What concept of Christ did St. Paul hold? He formed the concept of a purely spiritual Christ who can dwell in each human soul, so to speak, and can be realized within each individual. But St. Paul nowhere asserts that the Christ whom he considered to be a purely spiritual being should necessarily have been present in a Jesus whose existence cannot be historically proved. One can therefore say that no one knows whether an historical Jesus lived or not, that the Christ concept of St. Paul is a purely spiritual one, simply reproducing what may live in every human soul as an impulse toward perfection, as a sort of God in man. The author of the Christ myth 
points out further that certain conceptions of a pre-Christian Jesus that were similar to the idea the Christians have of Jesus Christ were already in existence, and also that several Eastern peoples held a concept of a Messiah. This compels Druze to ask, what then is actually the difference between the idea of Christ that St. Paul had and that Druze does not attempt to deny? What is the difference between the picture of Christ that St. Paul had in his heart and soul and the idea of the Messiah that was already in existence? Druze then goes on to say, Before the time of St. Paul, men had a Christ picture of a God, a Messiah picture of a God, who did not actually become man nor descend so far as individual manhood. They even celebrated his suffering, death, and resurrection as symbolical processes in their various festivals and mysteries, but they did not possess one thing. There is no record of an individual man having really passed through suffering, death, and resurrection on the physical earth. This, then, was more or less the general idea. The author of the Christ myth now asks, What, then, is new in St. Paul? To what extent did he carry the idea of Christ further? Drews replies, The advance made by St. Paul on the earlier conceptions is that he does not represent a God hovering in the higher regions, but a God who became individual man. Now, I want you to note this. According to the author of the Christ myth, Paul pictures a Christ who really became man. The strange part is, however, that St. Paul is supposed to have stopped short at that idea. He is supposed to have grasped the idea of a Christ who really became man, although according to him Christ never existed as such. St. Paul is therefore supposed to say that the highest idea possible is that of a God, a Christ, not only hovering in the higher regions, but having descended to earth and become man. It never entered his mind that this Christ actually did live on earth in a human being. This means that the author of the Christ myth attributes to St. Paul a conception of the Christ that to sound thinking is a mockery. St. Paul is made to say, Christ must certainly have been an individual man, but although I preach of him, I deny his existence in any historical sense. That is the nucleus around which the whole subject turns. Truly one does not require much theological or critical erudition to refute it. One need only confront Professor Drews as philosopher, His Christ concept cannot possibly stand. The Pauline Christ concept, in the sense in which Druze takes it, cannot be maintained without accepting the historical Jesus. Professor Druze's book itself demands the existence of the historical Jesus. It would seem, therefore, that today a book that is centered upon a contradiction such as turns all inner logic into a mockery can be widely accepted. Is it possible in these days for human thought to travel such crooked paths as these? What is the reason for this? Anyone who wishes clearly to understand the development of mankind must find the answer to this question. The reason is that what men believe or think at any given period is not the result of their logical thought, but of their feelings and sentiments. They believe and think what they wish to think. In particular, those who are preparing the Christ concept for the coming age feel a strong impulse to shut out from their hearts everything to be found in the old external records. Yet they also feel an urge to prove everything by means of such external documents. Considered from a purely material standpoint, however, these lose their value after a certain lapse of time. A time has already come for Homer and Shakespeare and so it will come for Goethe also, when people will try to prove that an historical Goethe never existed. 
In the course of time, historical records must lose their value from a material standpoint. What then is necessary, seeing that we are already living in an age when the thought of its most prominent representatives is such that they have an impulse in their hearts urging them toward the denial of the historical Christ? What is necessary as a new impulse of spiritual life? It is necessary that it should be made possible to understand the historical Jesus in a spiritual way. In what other way can this fact be expressed? As we all know, Saul became Paul at the event of Damascus. We also know that to him that event was the great revelation, whereas all he had heard at Jerusalem on the physical plane as direct information had not been able to change him. What convinced him was the Damascus revelation from the spiritual worlds. Christianity really came into being through that revelation, and through that revelation Paul gained the power to proclaim the Christ. Did he experience a purely abstract idea that might be contradicted? No. He was convinced from what he had seen in the spiritual worlds that Christ had lived on earth, had suffered, died, and risen. If Christ be not risen, then is my teaching vain? Paul quite rightly said. He did not receive the mere idea, the concept of Christ from the spiritual worlds. He convinced himself of the reality of the Christ who died on Golgotha. To Paul, that was proof of the historical Jesus. What then is necessary, now that the time is approaching, when as a result of the materialism of the age, the historical records are losing their value? Everyone can quite easily prove that these records cannot withstand criticism, and nothing can be proved externally and historically. It is necessary that people should learn that Christ can be recognized as the historical Jesus, without any external records whatever, that through correct training the event of Damascus can be renewed in each human being. Indeed, in the near future it will be renewed for humanity as a whole, so that it will be absolutely possible to be convinced of the existence of the historical Jesus. This is the new way in which the world must find the road to him. It is of no consequence whether or not the facts that occurred were right. The important point is that they did occur. It is of no consequence that such a book as that such a book as the Christ myth should contain certain errors. What matters is that it was found possible to write it. It shows that quite different methods are necessary in order that Christ may remain with humanity and be rediscovered. A man who thinks of humanity and its needs and of how the souls of men are expressing themselves externally will not ask. What do those who think differently matter to me? I have my own convictions, and they are quite enough. Most people do not realize what dreadful egoism underlies such words. It was not as the result of an idea, an outer ideal, or of some personal predilection that a movement arose through which people might learn that it is possible to find a way into the spiritual world, and that, among other things, Christ himself can be found there. This movement came into being in response to a necessity that arose in the course of the 19th century so that possibilities should flow down from the spiritual worlds into the physical world by means of which men would be able to obtain spiritual truth in a new sort of way since the old way had died out. Have we not testified in the course of this, the past winter how fruitful this new way may be? We have repeatedly laid stress on the fact 
that the first thing for us in our movement is not to take our stand on any external record or document, but to inquire just what is revealed to clairvoyant consciousness when one ascends to the spiritual worlds. If through some catastrophe all the historical proofs of the historical Jesus of the Gospels and of the epistles of Paul were lost, what would independent spiritual consciousness tell us? What do we learn concerning the spiritual worlds on the path that can be trodden any hour of the day by each and every one of us? We are told that in the spiritual worlds we will find the Christ, even though we know nothing historically of the fact that he was on earth at the beginning of our era. The fact that must be established by a repeated renewal of the event of Damascus is that there is an original proof of the historical personality of Jesus of Nazareth. Just as a schoolboy is not told that he must believe the three angles of a triangle equal 180 degrees simply because it was stated as a fact in the past, but is asked to prove it for himself, so we today not only testify out of a spiritual consciousness that Christ has always existed, but also that the historical Jesus can be found in the spiritual worlds, that he is a reality, and that he was a reality at the very time tradition says he was. We have gone further and have shown that what we established by spiritual perception without the Gospels is to be rediscovered within them. We can then feel a deep respect and reverence for the Gospels, finding in them again what we found in the spiritual worlds independently of them, and we know that they must have come from the same sources of supersensible illumination, from which we draw today. We know they must be records of the spiritual worlds. It is the purpose of what we call the Theosophical Movement to make such a method of observation possible, to make it possible for spiritual life to play its part in science. The stimulus to bring this about had to be given by the Theosophical Society. That is one side of the question. The other is that this stimulus had to be given when the time was ripe, This is proved by the fact that today, thirty years after the birth of the Theosophical Movement, the story of the non-historical Jesus still persists. How much is known outside this movement of the possibility of the historical Jesus being discovered in any other way than through external documents? What was begun in the nineteenth century continues, and the authority of religious documents is still being undermined. Thus, while there was the greatest necessity for this new possibility to be given to humanity, the preparations made for its reception were the smallest conceivable. Do we in any way believe that our modern philosophers are particularly ready to receive this new possibility? How unprepared they are can be seen by the concept they have of the Christ of St. Paul. Anyone acquainted with scientific life knows that this is the great and final result of the materialism that has been developing for centuries. Although it asserts that it wishes to rise above materialism, the mode of thought prevailing in science has not progressed beyond what is in the process of dying out. Science as it exists today is certainly a ripe fruit, but one that must suffer the fate of all ripe fruit. It must begin to decay. No one can assert that it could bring forth a new impulse for the renewal of its mode of thought or of its methods of reaching conclusions. When we think of this, 
we realize apart from all of the considerations the weight of the stimulus given through H. P. Blavatsky. No matter what our opinions of her capacities and the details of her life may be, she was the instrument through whom the stimulus was given, and she proved herself to be fully competent for the purpose. We, who as members of the Theosophical Society are taking part in celebrating such a day as this, are in a peculiar position. We are celebrating a personal festival that is dedicated to one person. Now, although the belief in authority is certainly a dangerous thing in the external world, yet the danger is reduced through the jealousy and envy that play so great a part. Even though the reverence of a few persons is manifested outwardly, and rather strongly by the burning of incense, egoism and envy still have considerable power over them. In the theosophical movement, the danger of injury through the worship of personality and belief in authority is particularly great. We are therefore in a peculiar position when we celebrate a festival dedicated to a personality. Not only the customs of the time, but also the matter itself places us in a difficult position, because the revelations of the higher worlds must always come via personalities. Personalities must be the bearers of revelation, yet we must take care not to confuse the one with the other. We must receive our revelations through the medium of a personality. Whether or not he or she is worthy of confidence naturally raises the question, what they did on such and such a day does not harmonize with our ideas. Can we therefore believe in the whole thing? This reaction forms part of a certain tendency of our time that may be described as lack of devotion to truth. How often today we hear of some prominent person who may please the public for one or more decades. At first what the person may do may be quite satisfactory, because the public is too lazy to go into the matter. Some years later, if it should transpire that this person's private life is open to suspicion and not all that it might be, the idol is toppled. Whether this is right or not is not the point. The point is that even though the person may be the means by which spiritual life comes to us, we ought to acquire the feeling that it is our duty to prove this for ourselves. Indeed, we ought to test the person by the truth rather than to test the truth by the person. <clears throat> that should especially be our attitude in the theosophical movement. We pay most respect to a personality when we do not encumber him with belief in authority as people are so fond of doing, because we know that the activity of that personality after death is transferred to the spiritual world. We are justified in saying that the activity of H. P. Blavatsky still continues, and we, within the movement she instigated, can either further that activity or injure it. We injure it most severely if we blindly believe in her, swearing by what she thought when she lived on the physical plane, and blindly believing in her authority. We reverse and help her most when we are fully conscious that she provided the stimulus for a movement that originated from one of the deepest necessities in human evolution. While we see that this movement had to come, we nevertheless ascribe the stimulus for it to her. Many years have gone by since that time, however, and we must prove ourselves worthy of her work by acknowledging that what was then started must now be carried further. We admit that it had to be instigated by her, but let us not ferret about in her private affairs, especially at the present moment. We know the significance of the impetus she gave, 
but we also know that it only imperfectly represents what is to come. When we recall all that has been put before our souls during the past winter, we cannot but say that what Madame Blavatsky started is indeed of deep and incisive importance. How immeasurable, however, is all that she could not accomplish in that introductory act of hers. What has just been said about the necessity of the theosophical movement for a right understanding of the Christ experience was completely hidden from Blavatsky. Her task was to indicate the seeds of truth in the religions of the Aryan peoples. A comprehension of the revelations given in the Old and New Testaments was denied her. We honor the positive work accomplished by this personality, and we shall not refer to all she was unable to do and that was concealed from her and which we must now contribute. Those who allow themselves to be stirred by H. P. Blavatsky and wish to go further than then she will say Let me read that again. Those who allow themselves to be stirred by H. P. Blavatsky and wish to go further than she will say, if the stimulus given by her in the theosophical movement is to be carried further, we must attain an understanding of the Christ event. The early theosophical movement failed to grasp the religious and spiritual life of the Old and New Testaments, which is why everything in the early movement is wide of the mark. The theosophical movement now has the task of making this good and of adding what was not given before. If we inwardly feel these facts, they will be experienced as a claim, as it were, made by our theosophical conscience. Thus, we visualize H. P. Blavatsky as the bringer of a new light of dawn. What good would that light be, however, if it were not to illumine the most important thing that man has ever possessed? A theosophy that does not provide the means of understanding Christianity is absolutely valueless to our present civilization. Should it become an instrument for understanding Christianity, we would then be making the right use of it. What are we doing if we do not do this, if we do not use the impulse given by H. P. Blavatsky for this purpose? We are arresting the activity of her spirit in our age. Everything in course of development, including the spirit of Blavatsky. Her spirit is now working in the spiritual world to further the progress of the theosophical movement. If, however, we sit before her and the book she wrote, saying that we will raise a monument to her consisting of her own works, who then is making her spirit earthbound? Who is condemning her to remain where she was when on earth? We ourselves, we revere and acknowledge her value, if, even as she went beyond her time, we also go further than she did, just as long as the grace ruling the development of the world continues to vouchsafe spiritual revelations from the spiritual world. This is what we place before our souls today as a question of conscience. After all, that is most in accord with the wishes of our comrade H. C. Olcott, the first president of the Theosophical Society, who has also now passed into the spiritual world. Let us ascribe, inscribe this in our souls today since it is precisely through lack of knowledge of the living theosophical life that all the shadowy sides of the theosophical movement have arisen. If the theosophical movement were to carry out its great original impulse unweakened and with a holy conscience, it would possess the force to drive out all the harmful influences that as time has passed have come in 
as well as others still to come. The one thing we must earnestly do is to continue to develop the impulse. In many places today we see theosophists who think they are doing good work and who feel happy to be able to say that they are now doing things that are in conformity with external science. How pleasing it is to many leading theosophists that they can point out that those who study the various religions confirm what has come from the spiritual world, while they fail to observe that it is just this unspiritual mode of comparison that must be overcome. Theosophy, for instance, comes into close contact with the thoughts that led to the denial of the historical Jesus. Indeed, there is a certain relation between them. Originally, Theosophy ranked the historical Jesus with other founders of religion. It never occurred to Blavatsky to deny the historical Jesus, though she certainly placed him one hundred years later. She did not deny his existence, but she did not recognize him either. Even though she instigated the movement in which he may someday be known, she was not able herself to recognize him. Here the first state of the theosophical movement comes strangely into line with what those who deny the historical Jesus are doing today. Professor Drews, for instance, points out that the occurrences that preceded the event of Golgotha can also be found in the accounts of the old gods, in the cults of Adonis or Tammuz, in which are also to be found a suffering god-hero, a dying god-hero, and a risen god-hero, etc. <clears throat> what is contained in these various old religion, religious traditions is constantly being brought forward. We are told of a Jesus of Nazareth who suffered, died, and rose again, and that he was the Christ. Then we are told that other peoples worshipped an Adonis, a Tammuz, etc. Thus the similarity between what happened in Palestine and the accounts of the old gods is constantly insisted upon. These comparisons are also made in the theosophical movement. People do not realize that comparing the religions of Adonis or Tammuz with the events that took place in Palestine proves nothing. I will show you by means of an example wherein such comparisons are at fault. They appear to be correct on the surface, but there is a serious flaw in them. Suppose an official, living in 1910, wore a certain uniform as an outer sign of his official activity, and that in 1930 the same uniform was worn by a different man. It will not be the uniform, but the individual wearing it, that will determine the efficiency of the work he accomplishes. Now suppose that in the year 2090 an historian comes forward and says, I have ascertained that in 1910 a man lived who wore a particular type of coat and trousers, and that the same outfit was also being worn in 1930. Thus we see that these clothes have been carried over from 1910 to 1930, and so on both occasions we are confronted by the same person. Such a conclusion would of course be foolish but not more so than to say that in the religions of the Middle East we find Adonis or Tammuz undergoing suffering, death, and resurrection the same as we do in Christ. The point is not that suffering, death, and resurrection were experiences, but rather by whom they were experienced. Suffering, death, and resurrection in the historical development of the world are comparable to the uniform in the example given above. We should not, however, point to the uniform we find in legends, but rather to the individuals who wear it. It is true that individualities, in order that men may understand them, have performed Christ deeds, so to say, which show that they too are capable of the accomplishments of a Tammuz, for instance, but each time there was a different being behind the acts.
Therefore, all religious comparisons that hope to prove the correspondence between Siegfried and Baldur, Baldur and Tammuz, etc., are but a sign that legends and myths take similar forms in different peoples. In trying to gain knowledge of man, there is no more value in these comparisons than there would be in pointing out that a certain type of uniform is found at a later time to be in use for the same office. This is the fundamental error prevailing everywhere, even in the theosophical movement. It is nothing but the result of materialistic thinking. The will and testament of Blavatsky will only be fulfilled if the theosophical movement is able to cultivate and preserve the life of the spirit, if it looks to the manifesting spirit and not to the books that someone may have written. Spirit should be cultivated among us. We will not merely study books written centuries ago, but also develop in a living way the spirit that has been given us. We will be a union of persons who do not simply believe in books or in individuals, but in the living spirit. We will not merely talk about Blavatsky having departed from the physical plane and living on after her death, but we will believe in what has been revealed through theosophy in such a living way that our lives on the physical plane will not be made a hindrance to the further supersensible activity of her spirit. Only when we think about her in this way will the theosophical movement be of use. Only when men and women who think in this way are to be found on earth can H. P. Blavatsky do anything for the movement. For this it is necessary that further spiritual research should be made. Above all, people should learn what was asserted in the last public lecture. Mankind is in process of development and something approximating conscience came into being at the time of Jesus Christ. Such things do arise and are of significance to the whole of evolution. At a particular point of time, conscience arose. Before that, it was altogether a different thing. It will be different again after man's soul is developed for some time in the light of conscience. We have already indicated the way in which it will change in the future. Paralleling the appearance of the event of Damascus, a great many people will experience something like the following in the course of the twentieth century. As soon as they have acted in some way, they will learn to contemplate their deed. They will become more thoughtful and will have an inner picture of the deed. Only a few will experience this at first, but the numbers will increase during the next two or three thousand years. As soon as they do something, a picture will be there. At first they will not understand it, but those who have studied spiritual science will know that it is not a dream, but a picture showing the karmic fulfillment of the act. They will know that one day what is pictured will take place as the fulfillment, the karmic balancing of what was done. This experience will begin in the twentieth century. Men will begin to develop the faculty of seeing before them pictures of far distant acts still to be accomplished. They will show themselves as inner counterparts of their actions, the karmic fulfillments that will one day take place. Then men will be able to say that they have been shown what they will have to do to compensate for what they have done, and they will know that they cannot become perfect until the compensation has been made. Karma will then cease to be mere theory when these inner pictures are experienced. Such faculties as this are becoming more frequent. New capacities are developing, but the old are the seeds for the new. What will make it possible for men to see the karmic pictures? It will come as the result of the soul having stood for some time in the light of conscience.
It is not the soul's various external physical experiences that are of the most importance to it, but rather its progress toward perfection. By the help of conscience, the soul is now preparing for what has just been described. The more incarnations a man has in which he cultivates and perfects his conscience, the more he is doing toward acquiring that higher faculty, through which in the form of spiritual vision the voice of God will again speak to him, the voice of God that was formerly experienced in a different way. Aeschylus still portrayed his Orestes as having a vision before him of what had been brought about by his evil actions. He was compelled to see the results of these actions in the external world. The new capacity developing in the soul is such that men will see in pictures the effects of their deeds for the future. That is the new stage. Development proceeds in cycles, following a circular pattern, and what man possessed in his older vision comes back again in a new form. Through knowledge of the spiritual world we are really preparing to awake in the right way in our next incarnation. This knowledge also helps us to work in the right way for those who are to come after us. For this reason spiritual science is in itself not an egotistical movement. It does not concern itself with what benefits the individual alone, but with what makes for the progress of all mankind. We have now inquired on two occasions. What is conscience? Today we have also asked, what will the conscience now developing eventually become? How does conscience stand if we regard it as a seed in the age through which we are now passing? What will be the result of the action of this seed of conscience? The answer to this last question is, the higher faculties just described. It is important that we should believe in the evolution of the soul from incarnation to incarnation, from age to age. We learn this when we learn to understand true Christianity. In this respect, we still have a great deal to learn from St. Paul. In all Eastern religions, including Buddhism, you find the doctrine that proclaims the outer world to be Maya. So it is. And in the East, that is established as absolute truth. Paul points to the same truth, asserting it emphatically. At the same time, however, Paul also emphasizes that man does not see the truth when he looks with his eyes. He does not see reality when he looks at what is outside him. Why is this? Because in his descent into matter he transfused the external reality with illusion. It is man himself, through his own act, who has made the outer world an illusion. Whether you call this the fall, as the Bible does, or give it another name, matters not. It is man's own fault that the outer world now appears as an illusion. Eastern religions blame the gods for this. Beat your breast, says Paul, for you have descended and have thus so dimmed your vision that color and sound no longer appear spiritual. You do not believe that color and sound are materially existent? No. Do you believe that color and sound are materially existent? They are maya. You have made them maya. You, man, must release yourself from this. You must reacquire what you release yourself from and set yourself free. Not, however, in the way advised by Buddha to free yourself from the longing for existence, but you must look upon the life on earth in its true light. What you have reduced to maya, that you, that you must restore within yourself. This you can do by taking into yourself the Christ force, which will show you the outer world in its reality. <clears throat> Here lies the great impulse 
for the life of Western countries, a new impulse, which as yet is far from having been fully disseminated. What does the world know today of the fact that in one part of it an endeavor is actually being made to create a theory of knowledge in the sense of St. Paul? Such a theory could not affirm, as Kant does, that the thing in itself is incomprehensible. Such a theory of knowledge can only say, It lies within you, O man, through what you now are. You are bringing about an untrue reality. You must yourself go through an inner process. Then will maya be transformed into truth, into spiritual reality. The task of my books, titled Truth and Science, and titled The Philosophy of Freedom, was to put a theory of knowledge on a Pauline basis. Both of these books are focused on what is the great achievement of the Pauline conception of man in the Western world. The reason these books are so little understood, or at most in theosophical circles, is because they assume the hypothesis of the whole impulse that has found expression in the spiritual scientific movement. The greatest must be seen in the smallest. Through such considerations as these, which lift us above the limits of our narrow humanity and show us how in our little everyday work we can link on to what goes on from stage to stage, from life to life, leading us evermore into spiritual existence, through dwelling on these shall we become good theosophists. It is right that we should devote ourselves to thoughts such as these on a day devoted to a personality who gave the stimulus to a movement that will live on, a movement that is not to remain a mere colorless theory, but must have the sap of life within it, so that the tree of the theosophical conception of the world may constantly renew its greenness. In this spirit, let us endeavor to make ourselves capable of preparing a field in our movement in which the impulse of Blavatsky shall not be hindered and arrested, but shall progress to further development. The end of Lecture 7